0: Thank you, Mike, for that ministry and music, and thank you to everyone who's had a hand in our our service for this evening. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, that's where our passage can be found, and we will be looking at verses 24 through 27. I believe this is a a very, very well-known portion of Scripture, and I would like to begin by simply reading these four verses. Once again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Please follow along as I read, beginning at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In the world of children's ministries, songs are often used to teach children biblical concepts. So whether it be toddlers or grade school children or, or even teenagers, music is a tool used for the biblical and spiritual development of children. Why is this? Because music helps information stick. When information is put to music, it is often easier for us to remember. I read a, a short article published by Harvard Health that briefly explained the connection between the human brain and music. just want to read a small quote from it, and it says this, and I quote, Two recent studies, one in the United States and the other in Japan, found that music doesn't just help us retrieve stored memories, and here's the big point, it, that is music, also helps us lay down new ones. In other words, music helps us create new memories, memories that we can then more easily recall. As I think back to my, my toddler years, there's not much that I can rem- remember. There, there just isn't. I, it's, it's hard for me to put a finger on a specific event that, that happened when I was two, three, four years old. I know some people can remember back that far. I can't. However, while I can't remember specific events or actions, I do remember, clear as day, the songs that I sang in Sunday school, songs like Father Abraham, uh, songs like Jesus Loves Me and I'm in the Lord's army. I remember these songs. I could probably recite some of them on the spot if I needed to. You see, these songs have been infused into my brain because I learned them at such a young age. While I don't remember the act of singing them, I know I learned them. Why? Because they pop back into my mind from time to time. You see, music helps information stick. So why do I mention all this? Well, because as, as I was preparing for the sermon, a, a song from my childhood came to mind, a song that I learned in Sunday school. I don't necessarily remember singing it, but the tune and the words are a memory written in my mind, and that song is called, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. And when this song came to mind, I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? One of the first things that came to mind when I sat down to study this passage of Scripture, was a song that I was was a song that I was that I learned when I was probably about two years old. You see, that memory stuck. But further, I thought to myself, if this song is the first thing that comes to mind, I wonder what this song taught me about the passage before us this evening. What did this song teach me about the lesson to be learned from the wise builder and the foolish builder? Well, what did the lyrics say? The lyrics say this, beginning with stanza one. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rain came tumbling down. The rain came down, and the floods came up, and the wise man's house stood firm. Stanza two. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the rain came tumbling down. The rain came down, and the floods came up, and the foolish man's house went splat. And finally, stanza number three. Pay careful attention to this one, for this is where we, where we see the lesson so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessings will come down. The blessings will come down as your prayers go up, so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the lesson to be learned? Build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what this song teaches. Build your house on the rock of Jesus. Now, why do I bring this up? Why do I quote these three stanzas of this children's Sunday school song? Well, because I I think oftentimes we leave this parable, this teaching of Christ, exactly where the song leaves it. When we think of this story of the, the wise man and the foolish man who built their houses either on the rock or on the sand, we come to the same exact conclusion as our song. And that conclusion is simply left at, build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure your foundation is on Jesus, and then you will be able to withstand the trials of this life. Now, I'm not bashing this song. I think it is an excellent song, and I am incredibly thankful I was taught this biblical teaching at a young age. I think its conclusion is very appropriate. I think that building your life on the foundation of Jesus is the overarching message of this passage. I like the song. I think it's very, very good. But I want to ask the question, how often do we go deeper? What does it mean to build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we practically root our lives in the foundation that only God can provide? Well, the passage tells us, it tells us, the passage explains that, or explains what it means to build your house on the rock, yet oftentimes I think we we overlook it. I think we are satisfied with simply saying that we need to build our lives on Christ and then leaving it simply at that. But there is more to this passage. There is a theme and a message that Christ is communicating. So this evening, let's study this passage. Let us us see more clearly the depth of what it means to build your house upon the rock of Jesus. Our theme for this evening, very simply put, is this. Obedience to Jesus is the proper response to Jesus' teachings. Obedience to Jesus is the proper response to Jesus' teachings. A key verse is the very first verse, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now before we, we, we start analyzing this passage, I, I always think it is helpful to understand the context. What's going on? Why, why is the parable of the wise man and the foolish man specifically placed in Matthew chapter 7? Well, this is a unique portion of the word of God because the context is actually mentioned within our very first verse. Look with me at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. That is how Jesus begins this parable. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Let's focus on that final part of that phrase. These words of mine. This is a reference to Jesus' words. He is the one speaking here. But more specifically, This is a reference to the immediate words that Jesus has just spoken. Let me say that again. This this is a reference to the immediate words that Jesus has just spoken. What are those immediate words? Well, those would be the words found in the previous chapters of 5, 6, and 7. And when we look at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 as a whole, we typically refer to these three chapters as the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine... It is a reference to the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And I I do believe that this passage can be applied to all of Christ's teachings, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but in the immediate context, these words of mine are a reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we were to understand how this parable fits in with the Sermon on the Mount, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Well, let's answer that question very briefly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has been teaching his disciples a, a message that was unique to the teachings of that day. It was a countercultural message. It was a message that stood in stark contrast to the teachings of the religious leaders. You see, the, the scribes and Pharisees, uh, the religious establishment, taught a message of outward righteousness. And as a result, Jewish religion became a collection of external actions actions that looked good on the outside, but were, they were not motivated. By a changed heart. So Christ, he taught his disciples a very different message, a true message, a a message that portrayed the truth of the kingdom of God. What Christ taught his disciples was the genuine pursuit of righteousness. Let me say that again. What Christ taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount was the genuine pursuit of righteousness. And of what did that consist? a transformation of the heart. You see, Christ explained that one could not live up to the standards of the law through good works. It couldn't be done. Uh, Even though the scribes and Pharisees said that you could live up to that standard, right? They, They walked around and acted like they upheld the law. Matthew 6 talks all about that. But in reality, they were hypocrites. They could not live up to the true standards that the law set forth. It simply couldn't be done. The purpose of the law was to reveal our shortcomings. It was to show us that we are sinners and we cannot conform to the standard of a holy God. And because we fall short, a life that is truly pleasing to God is one that is lived through dependence on and obedience to Christ and His authority. We cannot measure up to the standard of holiness. Christ can, and because Christ did, our dependence must be upon Him alone. That is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. Dependence upon Christ and his authority is how one is to pursue righteous living. So, back to verse 24 of Matthew 7, when Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, that is a reference to Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And what was the main idea of the Sermon on the Mount? It is that dependence upon Christ and his authority is how one is to pursue righteousness. Keep that in mind. That is is going to be the underlying foundation to the message this evening. That's the context. But our analysis of the context doesn't stop there. Let's look at placement. Where is this passage located in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's at the end of chapter 7. The end of chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the entirety, remember, it's the entirety of chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if this passage is at the end of chapter 7, that means that this is the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Quite literally, that quotation mark at the end of verse 27, it ends the whole Sermon on the Mount. These are the final words. This passage is Christ's concluding thoughts to his audience. This is the finale. This is the climax. This is the grand concluding lesson. So let's look at that lesson. What does Christ say is the great takeaway from his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount? Look with me again at our first verse, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, and does them. The great takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount is obedience. Obedience. To obey the words of Jesus, to to do the word of God, to hear the words of Jesus is is simply not enough. Jesus' listeners needed to respond in submission to his words. The great concluding lesson to be learned from the Sermon on the Mount is simply obedience. Obedience. Now, we need, to, we need to stop here for a second and build this out a little more in order for us to fully grasp the weight of what Jesus is saying here. If we are not careful, I, I fear we often hear the word obedience. We hear phrases like, do the word of God. And we don't give it much thought. You know, it, we understand as believers that we are to obey God's word, that we, we are to submit to his authority, that we are to give our lives over to his role. Obedience in general is a basic pillar in Christianity. We know that. And since we say that we know that, sometimes I believe we consider obedience to be no more than an elementary thought in Christendom. It's something we already know. We already know that we are supposed to submit to Christ's authority. We, We already know we're supposed to follow the word of God. We already know that we are supposed to obey. So we pass it along. But let's pause, think for a moment. In our passage, do we understand what Jesus is saying to his listeners? Do we understand the weight of what obedience entails? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, to respond to Jesus in obedience has two two overarching implications. The first is that obedience means that Christ is now the one who has authority over your life. That That is part of the picture of the solid foundation that we will get to in a second. But secondly, and the one I want to focus on for a couple moments here, is this. Obedience implies in our passage, what it implies is a turning away from the teachings of the religious establishment. Obedience to Christ means denying the beliefs of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's huge. That is a massive and a very scary stance to take. Why? Because the scribes and Pharisees were the emblem of godliness. The scribes and Pharisees, they were the teachers. The scribes and Pharisees, they knew their scripture. And the scribes and Pharisees made sure that others knew that they knew the scriptures. They were the pinnacle of perfection. That's why it's so astonishing that Christ says just a couple of verses prior, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a very astonishing astonishing statement. If anyone was considered holy enough to enter heaven, it was the scribes and it was the Pharisees. They were the examples. They were the blueprints to the Judean religion. If you wanted to be holy... You listened to the scribes and the Pharisees, and the people understood that clear as day. That's what they were taught. But to obey Christ meant that his followers would have to turn their backs on their spiritual leaders. And there was no question about it. It was unmistakable that this is what Christ was advocating for. Christ just got done condemning the religious establishment. He repeatedly calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, hypocrites. In the previous chapters, in chapter 6, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. It says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites. That's a reference to the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 6, 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Matthew 6, 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. We could go even further back and see more of this condemnation in Matthew chapter 5. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is caked full with Jesus' countercultural message. His teaching stood in stark contrast to the religious establishment. So, to obey Jesus was to deny everything that the Judeans thought they knew about life and godliness. Let me say that again. To obey Jesus was to deny everything that the Judeans thought they knew about life and godliness. You see, obedience to Jesus for the people sitting on that mountainside was not an elementary thought or decision. Obedience had incredibly real and serious implications. It was a change in lifestyle. It was a denial of what they once thought to be true. It was an uproot of of their entire former selves. Which leads us to our first point of application. How serious are you about obedience? And we just got done seeing how serious of a matter it was for the Judeans to respond to Jesus in obedience. I would submit to you, obedience in our minds should have that same level of seriousness. You know, the the word of God does not need to, to be made relevant in our world today. It already is relevant, and it will always be relevant. With that in mind... Christ's countercultural teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is also countercultural today. To obey Jesus' words has serious implications today, just as it did in the in the, the present context of our passage. To obey God will often bring discomfort. It, it requires work, it requires a rejecting of the world's teachings in favor of the teachings of Christ. You know, we are bombarded by sinful ideologies and philosophies within our society. We know them, we experience them every day. And oftentimes, taking a stance against what the world says is uncomfortable. Why? Because we, we are tempted towards those ideologies. We are tempted by sin. It's enticing, it's, it's invigorating. But obedience is a serious matter. Submission to the words of God is not to be taken lightly. Obedience to God and his word is what is essential for our life lived in godliness. You know, if you, if you step back and you really think about obedience, you start to see the importance of it all throughout scripture. You see it repeated over and over again. Quite literally, quite literally, it is a foundation of our faith. Obedience is a foundation of our faith. In the book of Mark, do you know what Jesus' first words are that, are that are mentioned in the book of Mark? Listen as I read Mark 1, 14 through 15. This is the first time Jesus speaks. Uh, there's There's some context beforehand. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And verse 15 says this, And saying, Now this is the first time we hear Jesus speak, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a command, a command that needs to be responded to in obedience. If we obey that command, we are saved. We enter from death into life. You see, obedience to Jesus is one of the foundations of the Christian faith. Obedience is not a pillar of Christianity that is to be overlooked. We need to take obedience seriously. So my challenge is very simply said, but not always easily done. We must read the Word of God. We must hear the Word of God. But do not rest in that alone. You must also obey the Word of God. When you sit down to read your Bible through in a year, don't let it be a checklist. Don't rush through it to get it done. Understand first what the Word of God says, and then follow up by doing it. Follow through. Obey, for obedience is the lifeblood of our faith. As we continue along in our passage for this evening, we run into a very well-known parable, the parable of the wise builder and the foolish builder. And in this parable, Christ stresses the extreme importance of obeying his words. Christ does, does this by drawing a contrasting illustration, two sides of a choice, a choice either to obey Jesus or a choice to disobey Jesus. We know the illustration well. On one hand, we have the wise builder, the wise builder represents those who are obedient to the words of Jesus Christ. This man builds his house on the rock that being Jesus, and when the storms of life beat on his house, the house upholds its integrity. And then on the other hand, we have the foolish builder. The foolish builder represents those who are disobedient to the words of Jesus Christ. And this foolish builder, he he builds his life or he builds his house on the sandy land. And when the storms of life beat on his house, the house crumbles. This is a parable of contrast. On one hand, we have the illustration of obedience, and then on the other hand, we have the illustration of the disobedience. And with the time that we have left together this evening, I want us to see what we can learn about these two men. What can be learned about the man who obeys Jesus? What can be learned about the man who disobeys Jesus? What are their lifestyles like? What what are their priorities? And to begin, I want us to look at what they have in common. What are the common denominators between these two builders? What do they have in similarity? I want to point out two that the passage mentions. And the first is this. Both builders, they build a house. They both build a house. Look with me at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house. Who built his house. So the wise builder, he builds a house. Look with me now at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house. The same phrase. The foolish man also builds a house. That's the first common denominator. Both men, they build a home. Now, what do these houses represent? I believe these houses simply represent our lives, our livelihoods. Notice that in this parable, there is is no difference in the structure of these houses. The difference comes, which we'll see in a bit, in the foundation in which these houses are rooted. But the houses themselves are not mentioned as being different in any way. Just to elaborate a bit, you know, they, they, they're both houses with a door. They both have windows. They, they both are made of wood and brick. The houses themselves are similar. No difference is mentioned. Both builders build a typical house. In the same way, we each have a typical life, a life of around 77 years. And by the grace of God, we each are given a portion of time in which we exist here on earth. The difference will come in how that life is rooted. We'll get there in a moment. The second common denominator in this parable is the storms. Both houses are battered by storms. Look with me first at verse 24 and 25. It says, And everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And here's 25. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. So the wise man's house, it's beaten by storms. Now look with me at verse 26 and 27. And everyone everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Verse 27. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. These are the exact same words. This is the exact same phrase as that we see in verse 25. So the foolish man's house is beaten by storms as well. Now, what do these storms represent? I believe what they represent is twofold. First and foremost, I believe these storms represent the crises and the hardships of this world. Both of these men build houses, and if these houses represent their livelihoods, we see that both of their livelihoods are threatened by the storms. In the same way, we all face trials. We all experience the difficulties of this sin-stricken world. We know this to be true. Why? Because we all get sick. We all experience loss. We all experience hardship, both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We all live in the same world that has been cursed by sin. Both the wise man and the foolish man are clubbed around by life's difficulties. The only difference is in who can withstand these difficulties. The man who obeys God, he endures. The man who disobeys God, he crumbles. We'll elaborate on that in a minute. Secondly, the second thing that I think these storms represent is this. I believe these storms represent coming judgment. I believe they represent Judgment Day. Remember, we're rooted in, in the concluding section of Matthew chapter 7. And this concluding section of Matthew 7 has a common theme, and that is, that is judgment. Take a look with me at the three illustrations that precede this parable. First we have the, the narrow gate and the wide gate in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And in that illustration, notice what Christ says, beginning at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What is the end result of these two paths? One is death right an eternal damnation the other is life eternal immediately following in Matthew 7:15 through 20 we have the picture of a tree and its fruit and in this picture notice what Christ says again verse 19 every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire once again destruction and judgment for those who did not who do not choose Christ for salvation And immediately following this this section in Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23, we have these very stern words about those who are self-deceived about their salvation. I'll begin at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, that is God, or that is Jesus, declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. You see, a common theme that can be seen in these passages is that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and a side must be chosen. And now, in the parable of the wise and foolish builders, the storms of judgment are arriving. Judgment, judgment Day will test both, house, both houses. Judgment Day will test the spiritual structure of both of these men. And on that day of judgment, those who have built themselves upon anything or anyone other than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be siphoned out, right? Their security will fall, and eternal separation from God will be their outcome. You see, both men, they experience the storms of life and and the coming day of judgment. That is the second denominator between these two builders. Now I want to take a couple, couple moments and focus on the differences, How is the man who obeys Jesus' words different than the man who disobeys Jesus' words? Well, there are two differences that I would like to look at briefly. The first difference is found in the description of their character. In other words, their characterization. The obedient man, he's considered wise. Look with me at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Will be like a wise man. The man who chooses to obey Christ is a man who has understanding. He's not a fool. He is sensible. He's able to discern between right and wrong. When we, when we think of someone who was wise, I think our minds often go to Solomon. And, and when Solomon asks for wisdom, listen to how he describes wisdom. Alright, it's gonna be at the end of this passage that I'm gonna read, but listen to how he describes wisdom. I'm gonna read 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. It says, and now, O Lord, this is Solomon speaking, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. And here it is. That I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, this your great people? Good and evil. These terms are in the sense of morals used to judge his people, right? Solomon's going to be judging these people, and he wants to be able to discern between right and wrong. It is the contrast between what is good behavior and what is harmful behavior. You see... Part of having wisdom is being able to know what is morally right and what is morally wrong. A man who obeys God is one who is able to decipher between right and wrong. And this man knows that obedience to Jesus is the correct response to Jesus' words. And as a result, he acts upon that wisdom. He chooses to build his house on the rock. He chooses to build his life upon Jesus Verse 24. It says, "Everyone, everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock." The word "rock" here is actually a reference to bedrock, and and bedrock illustrates the picture of a continual hard. Surface. If you're going to build your house on a foundation, you want, a, you want it to be on a hard surface, and, and not a fragmented hard service, but a solid, continual rock. And that's the picture here. The wise man, in acting upon his wisdom, his, his ability to choose what is right, builds his house upon the rock, the understanding given to him by God. He's not simply a man who has wisdom but does not use it, like we see Solomon at the end of his life. Rather, this man is a man who acts upon his God-given understanding. To obey God's words is not merely a matter of knowing what to do. It is a matter of acting upon that understanding. Obedience requires actions. Now, on the contrary... The man who does not obey Jesus' words is considered foolish. Look with me at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Will be like a foolish man. The man who chooses to disobey Christ is a man who is without understanding. The word foolish here is the complete opposite of unwise. It quite literally means unwise. There is no thought behind his actions. We see this in the foundation that he chooses for his house. Verse 26 again, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The foolish man chooses to build his house on the sand. And I don't think I need to explain the lack of thought with that choice. When the storms come, his house crumbles because his foundation is wavering. Disobedience to the words of Jesus is foolishness. Now, the second difference between the obedient man and the disobedient man is their reaction to life's difficulties. Their reaction to life's difficulties. The obedient man is able to endure through life's difficulties. Look with me at verse 25. And the rain fell and the floods came and the, ha- the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Because of his commitment to God, the obedient man endures. He is able to withstand the trials of this life. Why? Because he is rooted in Christ. He has no need to fret or to worry. God's the one who sustains him. I I really like the picture here, right? The wise man's house does not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. You know, if you think about a foundation of a house, it's unseen, all right? You don't see it. In your day-to-day life, you never think about the foundation of your house. You think of the windows that need replaced. You think of, of your leaky faucet. You think of how your front door needs a new coat of paint. Your mind is focused on the outward parts of your house, what your eyes can physically see. But the foundation, right, it's not seen. So oftentimes you don't give it much thought. But let me ask you the question When do you think about your house's foundation? Typically, it's when, storm, it's, when it's storming outside. When the winds are blowing, when, when your house is creaking, that is when the foundation is more likely to come to mind. If you have a cracked foundation and your basement starts flooding with water, that is when the foundation comes to mind as well. You see, we often only think of our home's foundation when trials are experienced. Otherwise, it's often out of sight and out of mind. I would submit to you that is often the case with our life's foundation. We are not careful. We only think about Christ and the comfort, grace, and peace he gives to us when we are facing difficult situations. When our life is being pummeled, that is when our mind focuses upon God. It shouldn't be that way. Think back to when we, when we were discussing the importance of obedience. In the context of our passage, we looked at how obedience meant a turning away from the religious establishment. And the second part of obedience, which I said we'll talk about later, is a turning to Jesus and accepting his lordship and authority. You see, obedience to Jesus, it's a full-life commitment. And the more we come to obey his lordship in our lives, the more we recognize our dependence upon Jesus. When we truly turn our hearts to obey the word of God, we see that we need God's help to be obedient. And the more and more we see the necessity of God for obedience, the more we become satisfied in him in our day-to-day livelihoods. More and more we think about our foundation. More and more we are thankful for the ground beneath our feet. More and more we rest in the grace of God and his provision. In the beginning of our, our time together this evening, I made mention of the impact that songs have on the memory. Well, one song that came to mind when I when thinking about this This specific point here was the great hymn, When We Walk With the Lord. And I won't go through all the lyrics, but I just want to quote the chorus. The chorus says this, and I think we know it well. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Obedience to Jesus results in satisfaction in Jesus. The more we trust, the more we obey. The more we find comfort joy, and peace in the foundation that is under our feet. Let our foundation always be at the forefront of our minds. And finally, as we wrap up our passage, we see that on the contrary, the disobedient man is not able to endure life's difficulties. Matthew 7, 27 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the, fa- and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. The disobedient man crumbles under the pressures of this world. He has nothing, nothing to cling to on the day of adversity. Yes, he may have founded his life on money, or on his career, or on his family. But those will not ultimately save. They will not ultimately bring comfort they will not ultimately bring peace in the day of hardship. I, I experienced something very recently that I think speaks practically to this truth. I was in, in a hospital, and I heard a nurse give a patient some devastating news, and I mean absolutely heartbreaking news. And this patient broke out into tears, and, and the nurses, they clearly were in a, a tough p- position How do you console a patient who just heard some of the hardest news they may ever receive? So one of the nurses looked at this patient and simply said, Cling to hope. Cling to hope. I believe that comment was well intended, but I thought to myself, what hope? What hope is there apart from a sovereign God Money couldn't fix the problem. A career couldn't fix the issue. family can certainly be a comfort and a help, but they couldn't fix the problem. So my question remained, what hope? Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope to which one can cling. The only hope in this situation was to trust a good and sovereign God who has authority and comfort and control over all aspects of this of this sin-stricken life, a God whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts and whose ways are higher than our ways. The only one who can bring peace of mind in the day of adversity is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God can fully comfort, only God can save, and only God can bring Alaskan peace, so remain in Jesus. Obey his words. Learn your need for dependence upon him, for that is the only way to find satisfaction in this life. So, in conclusion, take a look with me at the very final line of Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. We didn't touch on it yet. This is the crowd's response to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. He was teaching them as one who had authority. Tonight, we looked at obedience to the words of Jesus. Our theme was obedience to Jesus is the proper response to Jesus' teachings. I would like to leave you with the answer to the question of why. Why are we to obey Jesus Christ? For he is worthy. Christ spoke with authority. He had authority. Why? Because he is God. Jesus' words were the very words of God. If we are to be like the wise builder, we are to obey those words. For we are to obey God. For he has lordship over our lives. Jesus is worthy of our praise. Jesus is worthy of adoration. Jesus is worthy of our obedience. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having authority over our lives. We thank you for being the bedrock on which our faith stands. Lord, I pray that every day we will seek to obey you. I pray that it won't be a secondary thought or something we simply overlook, but Lord, I pray that our obedience to you will be at the forefront of our minds. And I pray that in in seeking to obey you, we will know that ultimately it's something we need to depend on you for. For we are frail humans, but only you, only through your spirit can we, can we obey your word. Pray that you'll be with us this week as, as we seek to take uh, what you have taught us through your word and, and put it to heart. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.